Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Between 1881 and 1914, over 10 million people entered the United States from Europe, many of them from the Russian Empire, which included Poland and much of Eastern Europe. It involved a mass exodus of Jews fleeing discrimination and pogroms in their homelands. Many sailed on steamships from Hamburg. And Stephen Ujifusa tells us that story in his latest book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I. It's published by Harper and brings Stephen Ujifusa to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Leonard. Yeah, in the end, over 30 years from 1890 to 1921, didn't two and a half million Jews arrive in the United States? Yes, mostly from the Russian Empire, but also some from Romania and Austria-Hungary. But the majority came from the Russian Empire, where persecution was the absolute worst. It was state-sanctioned anti-Semitism on the part of the Tsar Nicholas II and his father, Alexander III. And that included my father's father from St. Petersburg. Uh, you, you point out that it was the largest mass migration of people from one continent to another in human history. What was U.S. policy yes. at that time? Were we welcoming immigrants? Well, starting after the Civil War, America had a pretty unrestricted immigration policy. And a lot of this was due to lobbying on the parts of industry for cheap labor. And so this 18 million people that came over between, say, 1880 and 1914, it wasn't just Jews. You had people from uh, Poland, uh, from Italy, Greece, uh, Southern and Eastern Europe who were escaping economic unrest. Asians as well. Anyone who wasn't Aryan. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty much. You had this, uh, this, this group of people who were really there was a tremendous unrest, and uh, out of those eighteen million people, I believe around over a hundred million people in the United States are descended from uh, today are descended from people who came through Ellis Island in this migration. In the end, over thirty years, from eighteen ninety to nineteen twenty one. Didn't two and a half million Jews arrive in the United States? Uh, you point out that it was the largest mass migration of people from one continent to another in human history. Uh, but most of those immigrants had few resources. Yes, for these uh, Jews trying to escape uh, the Russian Empire, it was a pretty much a move of desperation. Uh, in 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by an anarchist group. And his son, Alexander III, uh, took the throne and said, we need to crack down on this movement towards constitutional monarchy and all these radical forms of politics that are entering Russia. And he persecuted many minority groups within the Russian Empire who weren't uh, traditional Russian Slavs and, and Orthodox. Uh, he, but he singled out Russia's Jews, 4 million Jews at the time, who were confined to a, the southern part of the empire, known as the Pale of Settlement. And he targeted them with military conscription, taking boys as young as 10 years old hmm. into the army, where they would be gone for 25 years. And if they survived uh, the Tsar's many wars, they would come home stripped of their religion and not knowing their family. And he also basically gave the green light for... Uh, the Cossacks, who were his cap personal cavalry to wreak havoc on Jewish villages in the Pale of Settlement, and also basically said, look, on Easter, 
Uh, when you get out of church, you don't want to take out your anger on Jews, ordinary, ordinary Russian citizens, go ahead. The police will stand by. So it became a situation that became pretty untenable. And didn't and Russia pose obstacles that made it difficult for Jews to travel? Uh, they, meaning that leaving Ru Russia still was illegal, despite the fact that the Jews weren't wanted? Well, it was it was a strange mixed message because the uh, there are no ships that departed Russian ports uh, directly for the United States. And there was a border between the Russian province of Poland and Germany. And most of the great steamship lines that allowed passage to the United States were out of uh, Hamburg, Bremen, and also Antwerp, Antwerp, and also Liverpool. And so it was technically illegal for them to leave, but a lot of them did anyway. They these Jews ended up in border camps along the along the border and tried to get out. And the best way they could was to their hope was to get to the sea and in stepped the steamship companies, namely the Hamburg America line run by Albert Ballin and the North German Lloyd and several others. And they basically took government control. They basically made a deal with the German government, said we will take over the border crossings and allow people to come through. And if they've saved up enough money to buy a steamship ticket, they can come through. We'll put them on sealed trains and we'll take them to Hamburg or Bremen or Antwerp. And then they can get on their ships for the new world. So there, it, it's not, it wasn't similar to our current refugee crisis. Um, it, it was in terms of a number of people trying to get out, but the way that it was different was that it was set up by the 1880s, especially by the 1890s as a business where you had government cooperating with private enterprise to make this happen. Now, many of the children who were brought here went on to become important figures in our culture, including Felix Frankfurter, Irving Berlin, Mark Rothko, Emma Goldman. So um, this also enriched the United States. Oh, very much so. In fact, Irving Berlin, who was born Israel Berlin in Russia, came over as a young child and he remembered uh, seeing the Statue of Liberty. And on these immigrant ships, these ocean liners, uh, you'd have a thousand or so in traveling and steerage. And when they would arrive after this journey that would last anywhere from a week to three weeks by steamship, when they arrived in New York Harbor, all the immigrants would crowd onto the decks and uh, the ship would often tilt to one side. And Israel, uh, Israel Berlin, later Irving Berlin, uh, remember that site. And at the base of the statue, when it was completed, was uh, Emma Lazarus's poem, the, the, the New Colossus. And later, Irving Berlin would set the words to the New Colossus to uh, the famous song, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor. And he sort of became America's national songwriter. And there are many stories like that. Yeah. He wrote a number of songs, America the Beautiful. Um, yes. Yeah. So this is really about three men who played important roles in the story. You mentioned Albert Ballin, but also Jacob Schiff and J.P. Morgan. Wasn't Albert Ballin uh, the, the German-Jewish director of the Hamburg-America uh, line, which was then the largest shipping company in the world? Yes, Albert Ballin is the central character of my book, and he's someone who has not been especially well-known in no, the United States. No, I never States, heard of him before I saw your book, and yet here he is a major figure in in uh, in history. Well, his uh, basically his steamship line and his business plan 
arguably brought over more Americans than any other single person. And Albert Ballin was born in 1857 to a downwardly mobile Jewish family in Hamburg, Germany. He uh, knew anti-Semitism from a young age. And when his father died at 17, he took over his father's immigration agency. And he basically sold steamship tickets in bulk to waiting immigrants in Hamburg. And in the 1870s and 1880s, you had all these people coming in from you know, not just Russia, but also Germany and the rest of Europe looking for passage to the sea. And they would be taken advantage of by swindlers and boarding house owners. And Albert Ballin basically set up a successful business where he ended up purchasing uh, charter and chartering several small cargo ships and turn them into immigrant only carriers. And his business was so successful that the Hamburg America line uh, bought him out and made him their passenger director. And in 1889, he became at a very young age, the general director of the line, which is basically the equivalent of the CEO. And this was a very rare accomplishment for someone in uh, pre-World War One Germany, a Jewish person. Well, because he, he was Jewish, the- wasn't his memory and record smeared and erased by the Nazis, despite the fact that he'd been an intimate of German Emperor Wilhelm II? Oh, very much so. He died in 1918, just before the armistice. And in the 1930s, he was a suicide, wasn't he? Uh, it's disputed whether or not whether or not he killed himself or he died of, of of other causes. He was under a lot of stress at the time due to the war and the ruin of his company. But he uh, he his memory was pretty much eliminated by the Nazis. He was known as one of the great business people in pre World War One Germany. But the Nazis, you know, dis, uh, denamed one of the ships that was named in his honor. They scrubbed his record at Hamburg America Line clean. And today, ha- Hamburg America Line is now Hop Hog Lloyd. You see all the containers. Mm-hmm. And only in, starting in the 1960s, 1970s, did the city of Hamburg recognize his role as a great mover of people and shipping magnate. And, and today, the company survives as Hop Hog Lloyd. If you see the containers all over. Uh, all over the place. Well, as you point out, the laws excluded him from government posts, elite society, and even ownership, an ownership share in his own company. But didn't he invent the modern luxury cruise? He did. He was really, before he came along in the 1890s, uh, in the shipping world, the ocean voyage was not seen as something pleasant. It was seen as something to be endured, whether you're traveling first class on vacation to Europe or whether you're an immigrant traveling from Europe to the United States. But Albert Ballin took one of his new liners he had built in 1889 called the August Victoria that was burned too much coal and was not very economical to run during the winter season. She also didn't have enough steerage berths to make money. So he deployed her on a Mediterranean cruise and it proved to be tremendously successful. And he built a few of these purpose-built cruise ships, which he sent to the Caribbean and to uh, the fjords of Norway. And he basically came up with the idea of first-class travel on the Hamburg America Line ships as a luxury experience. He made a contract with the Ritz-Carlton Company to operate restaurants on a number of his ships. And he way outdid the British lines when it came to outstanding luxury. So he was a visionary. Who was traveling in first class on his ships? Because, uh, you know, there were an awful lot of uh, immigrants uh, densely packed in in steerage in the same ships. 
Well, that's one of the strange ironies of these ocean liners is that they were very, they were technological marvels. And Albert Ballin had a lot to do in making the modern ocean liner what it was. But in a typical Hamburg America line ship of 1905, you might have 600 in first class, 500 in second, and then maybe one to 2,000 in steerage. That's what paid the bills. But in first class, you had American and German and French high society going back and forth. Uh, Hamburg America Line was very popular with wealthy German Jews uh, who had immigrated to America and made a lot of money. And they would often go back and forth between New York and Germany uh, for vacations. And Jacob Chief Schiff, family. who I mentioned in my book, he was uh, a frequent passenger. So you had multi, multi-millionaires traveling on these ships, but on the same hulls were these immigrants. But didn't Ballin have to overcome a lot of obstacles to selling tickets to Jews in Russia and getting them to his German ported ships? They, they, had, to, they had, had to get across border crossings, and that was often difficult, wasn't it? It was, it was very difficult, but as I mentioned earlier, in the 1890s, he had the Hamburg America Line and its rival, the North German Lloyd, basically took over border controls and staffed it with agents and with inspectors to make sure the people going through didn't have diseases, which would make them rejected at Ellis Island. And his takeover of the border crossings actually made the process a lot easier. He was still criticized, though, by especially members of the German Jewish elite for for exploiting his own people. And you did have representatives of Jewish aid organizations, such as the uh, German Jewish Aid Society, the Alliance uh, Universelle Israelite from France, from France, who would have stations where they would provide aid and assistance to immigrants at the border. But Ballin and the other steamship lines had agents deep within the Russian Empire uh, who would sell steamship tickets. You had advertisements in Yiddish. Hmm. And they would always make sure there was a picture of a big four-funneled liner on these ads because that implied safety to these people who had never seen the ocean before. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at large is Stephen Ujifusa, U-J-I-F-U-S-A, his latest book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I, is published by Harper, a division of HarperCollins. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. He also had to, to house people while they were waiting to get on the ships, didn't they, and uh, keep them separated from... Um, Hostile anti-Semitic locals? Yeah, so we think of Ellis Island uh, in New York Harbor as kind of the entry point for all these immigrants. But there was a mirror image, Ellis Island, in the city of Hamburg, known as the Immigrant Village, which was built by the Hamburg America Line in the 1890s. And it could house thousands of immigrants at a time who came in by train. And it was housed away from the Hamburg city center, away from predatory boarding house owners, and also away from hostile residents who were you know, very anti-Semitic, uh, very anxious about migrants coming in and settling down in Hamburg. And it was kind of this walled compound that had a synagogue, a church, there was a kosher kitchen, uh, there was a band concerts on Sundays. It was a, it was a way of Albert Ballin. On one hand, it was his 
humanitarian aspect, but also it was a way of making money where immigrants would say, oh, we were very well treated by the Hamburg America line. And when riding home to friends and family who wanted to come to the United States, they would say, travel on Hamburg America. Immigrants are treated better. So he built so, large barracks that were complete with medical care and kosher food. Exactly. Yes. But uh, as you say, in isolated sections uh, near his Hamburg docks. Yes, they would. Uh, I, I remember looking at the plans for the immigrant village and the Hamburg State Archives, and there was a huge concern among the city fathers about the spread of disease. And both in America and in Germany, there was this association of immigrants with diseases, and Jewish immigrants were tarred with cholera and tuberculosis. And I saw all of these plans detailing where the wastewater was going to go and make sure that was that was targeted, but or that was well taken care of. But they would be wait for up to two weeks before sailing. Then they would get on a, a ferry boat and they would go up to Cookshaven at the mouth of the Elbe River and get on their liners. And it was a, I just can't imagine as a father of two children, after having endured that scary journey by rail in a sealed car, you then got on this ocean liner and you're all of a sudden in this vast open dormitory, basically. <laughs> and the bunks are stacked three high. There's no privacy and you're traveling with your family. And then you've, you've never probably seen flush toilets or electric lights before. And off you go. You're on the ship for a week, a week and a half. And Steerage is located either at the front of the ship where the most motion is felt or at the rear where the engines are. And people were getting seasick all over the place. Deck space was limited. It was it was very challenging. Um, our Ballon did introduce a sort of steerage plus called third class that had separate cabins for families starting in 1905. But it was still a harrowing journey, especially in the North Atlantic in winter. What impact did... Uh... Russia's uh, launching of its 1905 war against Japan have on balance companies? It caused a even greater crush of people trying to get out of the empire to avoid military conscription. You also had uh, the attempted revolution of 1905 in St. Petersburg, which caused great civil unrest and a, a failed attempt at a constitutional monarchy with the Duma. So it just created more uncertainty in Russia. And this was great news for Albert Ballin. And even though it's unclear what Albert Ballin's direct feelings on, on the Tsar was, but he did make a deal with Tsar Nicholas II's government. We sold them a few outdated ocean liners to be turned into cruisers. And he also provided coaling stations for the Russian armed squadron's failed uh, and ultimately disastrous uh, trip around halfway around the world to do battle uh, with Admiral Togo's fleet at Tsushima. And so that actually, th that was a disaster for Russia. But Hamburg, America made off with a lot of money thanks to that deal and was allowed to basically rebuild their fleet. So it was a strange uh, deal for Albert Ballin. He was criticized by the German government for doing his own diplomacy. But Albert Ballin was very shrewd. and He ultimately won the Kaiser's approval for what he did. Do you see him as one of the heroes of this story? Because didn't some of his critics uh, see him as a ruthless capitalist who exploited his own people's misery to make money? I think he was a very practical person. I think that without him, this mass migration of Jews out of the Russian Empire, this logistical machine he built, 
it would not have happened nearly as smoothly as it did ultimately. Not did not that it didn't have its problems, but I think Albert Ballin was someone who was stuck between many worlds. He was trying to navigate being a Jew in Imperial Germany, which at the time it was a good place for. Jewish business people. There were a lot of upwardly mobile Jews, such as himself and Kaiser Wilhelm II's Germany. Jews were given full citizenship rights. They saw uh, Russia the as being crazy about all of this? Well, Russia was kind of an aberration in, in between 1880 and 1914, and that other European countries were increasingly liberal towards Jews in terms of citizenship rights. I mean, there were, there were anti-Semitic streaks in Austria and France, such as the Dreyfus Affair. But Albert Ballin, I think, was trying to navigate a very tricky position. He married a Gentile uh, named Marianne Rauert Ballin. He refused to convert to Lutheranism, saying it would be an insult to the memory of my father. Uh, he raised an adopted daughter named Ermgard, who was he was devoted to, and she was raised a Lutheran. But I think that he was doing the best he could. He ended up being very successful. And he ultimately, but he was attacked by the anti-Semitic far right. Uh, one member of the Reichstag said, basically insinuated, strangers from Palestine have gotten to the closest reaches of the throne. And they implied that he was like, the, the, the anti-Semitic right basically implied or said, well, these aren't German Jews, they're Jews who speak German. But he was also attacked on the far left, uh, the Social Democrats, uh, saw him as a ruthless capitalist and someone who exploited uh, the crew. And he had a really tough time dealing with the officers and mariners union in Hamburg. So he kind of found himself attacked from many sides. Well, but he said, my greatest loyalty is to the Hamburg America line, uh, which is the company I built pretty much from scratch when it was about to go bankrupt in the 1880s. So I do see him as a hero. He's not a perfect person. Uh, he would fly into these tremendous rages when he didn't get his way. His best friend was the banker Max Vorberg of the Hamburg banking family. And the two of them had a very close and uh, relationship. Uh, Max Vorberg was the more even-tempered of the people. Uh, and Albert Ballin was an extremely emotionally attuned people, a person. People who knew him knew that he had to put on this tough front to operate a shipping company at this time. By 1908, over 100,000 immigrants passed through his villages each year. And of the estimated one and a half million Jews who left Russia for America between 1881-1914, didn't as many as one million come on balance ships? Yes, it's it's... It's, it's uh, the exact numbers are clear, but easily a million people came on on balance ships. And it was really a uh, Albert Ballin would say, yes, the first class business is fun. He loved traveling on his ships and he would carry around a little notebook, making sure that the passenger cabins were just so or the service was just so what needed to be improved. But he did say, without steerage, my company would be bankrupt in two weeks. Wasn't his final ship, the Vaterland, the largest passenger ship of its time and, and, and the largest one for the next 20 years? When did he yes, build Albert that? Ballin, sorry. Yes, he, starting in 1909, 1910, 
he planned a series of three enormous superliners that were in response to three superliners that his rival, the White Star Line, were building over in Belfast, Ireland. And he made sure that his ships would be bigger than the White Star ships, which would be called the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know Albert what Ballin happened to built... the Titanic, of course. Yes, yes. I mean, he was he, the 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 last ship that he built uh, before the war uh, started was the SS Vaterland. She was. 54,000 tons, 950 feet long, and she was able to carry over 2,500 in steerage, wow. uh, which was incredible. And she was able to travel at a top speed of 26 knots. She was a phenomenal engineering accomplishment. And where, where it happened to that ship? Well, the SS Vaterlan only made a few voyages in peacetime flying the Hamburg American flag. And then when the war started in July 1914, she was in New York at the time, at the Hoboken Pier, the Hamburg America Line. And like several other uh, vessels of the Hamburg America Line, they were stuck in US ports. Now, the question was, should they make a mad dash for Germany and home, or should they stay in US ports? And Albert Ballin decided, you know what, they should just wait it out. Wait it out and, and let's see what happens with this war. But ultimately, the ships couldn't go anywhere. The British mined the North Sea for a blockade. And the British Navy threatened, if any of these magnificent ocean liners make a run for it, we'll intercept them. And in 1917, when the United States entered the war, the Vaterland, along with several other Hamburg America Line's finest ships, were seized by the U.S. Navy and turned into troop transports and stripped of their finery. And Albert Ballin, when he found out that Germany and England were at war, declared in tears, my life's work is ruined. And he had been working behind the scenes uh, with his contacts in Great Britain, including uh, Winston Churchill, who became a friend of his, and the banker Sir Ernst Kassel, who was private banker to Edward VII, to stop a war between Germany and Great Britain. But ultimately, he failed. Also, U-boat attacks were a major problem, weren't they? Well, they, uh, they were, shut and down I think virtually all civilian travel across the Atlantic. It did, and that's ultimately the, the World War One was what ultimately ended mass immigration between uh, Russia and Central Eastern Europe and the United States because ocean liners were either seized and turned into troop ships, or they were stuck in U.S. ports. And when the Russians and the Germans began fighting on the Eastern Front and Austria-Hungary also got in the mix, uh, the borders were closed and it became a killing field. And when the Russians invaded parts of Germany or parts of, parts of Austria-Hungary, they inflicted mass pogroms on the Jewish population there. So you had hundreds of thousands of people who were stuck, who were trying to get out. Hmm. And unfortunately, this this started with this came at the same time as a massive rise in anti-immigrant feeling in the United States, and especially anti-Semitism. Uh, you had, I don't want to even call him a thinker, but uh, scientific racists such as Madison Grant, who wrote The Passing of the Great Race in 1916, which basically claimed that Southern and Eastern Europeans are dangerous. They are genetically inferior to the so-called Nordic race of in America and Germany and England. And if they interbreed, that'll be race suicide. And that became a bestseller. And, but and did, did the immigration... Did we know if Adolf Hitler read it 
and uh, was influenced when he wrote Mein Kampf? Yes, Adolf Hitler called uh, the passing of the great race my Bible, which is pretty chilling. It it said that there was a Nordic Aryan racial superiority. Yes, yes. Albert, uh, uh, Adolf Hitler drew a lot of his inspiration from the scientific racism of the Immigration Restriction League in the United States, of Madison Grant, also from French and German thinkers such as Gobineau. So this scientific racism had been around for a while, but it was really popularized in the United States. And then we had politicians like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. What role did he play in this story? So Senator Henry Cabot Lodge was a longtime senator from Massachusetts, a Republican, who was a contradiction. He was a patrician uh, member of Boston's upper class. He had long lobbied for civil rights for African-Americans uh, post-Civil War, but he was terrified and wrote very vitriolic things about Southern and Eastern Europeans. And he joined up with the Immigration Restriction League, which was founded in the 1890s by people such as the lawyer Prescott Farnsworth Hall and also uh a lot of elite New Yorkers in, and also Bostonians in academia and in high society. And this started, the Immigration Restriction League started as an elite movement in academia and high society, but by the 1910s, its ideas had trickled into the mainstream media. And they were well-funded uh, and had allies in Congress. And what started off as a fringe elite movement became a popular movement. Uh, you had uh, Professor... Charles Amaso, sorry, Francis Amaso Walker, who was at both at MIT and Yale, say of these Jewish and Italian immigrants, they are beaten men from beaten races who have failed in the struggle for existence. And here they are in the United States. This is going to be our downfall. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. That's Irving Berlin singing his composition, and he's one of the people who is discussed in this book that we are talking about, The Last Ship from Hamburg. If, you, uh, if you're enjoying this conversation with Stephen Uji Fusa, I hope that you'll sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, because then you'll be able to receive a free copy of the book, The Last Ships from Hamburg. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call... 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Stephen Ujifusa, his book, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business 
Rivalry and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I, published by Harper. To some degree, is this also a story that touches you personally? It does touch me personally because my mom's family are Russian Jews and my great-grandparents uh, came over to America in the 1890s, fleeing pogroms in Belarus and Ukraine. And my grandmother, who passed away in 2015, she was a lifelong New Yorker who uh, really taught me a love of history. And she was someone who grew up uh, as the youngest of eight children in an immigrant household. Her father, Isaac Schlefstein, my great-grandfather, came here with the proverbial $10 in his pocket, settled in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and became a butter and egg Not salesman. the Lower East and Side. It, yeah, not the Lower East Side. They lived in Brownsville, but he did have a business on uh, the Lower West Side near the Ocean Liner Piers. And by the time my grandmother was born in 1916, he had become a very successful uh, business person. And my grandmother would always say that she remembered on the 4th of July that her grand, her father would make a big display of unfurling the American flag on the porch of their townhouse in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And she inspired my love of history. And I felt, I, I think about this, this country with all of its history and all of its flaws, that without my great grandparents making that journey in 1890 something, they probably would have died in the Holocaust mm -hmm. uh, when the Nazis invaded uh, Russia. And that's something I, I feel a great debt to, to my uh, to my great great parents for making that journey. And so many of these people had a major impact on New York, both I mentioned Lower East Side and also Brooklyn. Uh, why Brooklyn? Was well, Brooklyn was a, welcoming uh, in some ways, and were the lower was the Lower East Side welcoming because it really did affect American culture. I mean, the the food we eat, all sorts of other things were directly affected by this new influx of immigrants. Well, I think by the 1890s, the Lower East Side had become, I think, the most congested urban area in the United States or in the world, I believe, denser than uh, the densest parts of Calcutta or Bombay. And I think the reason why my family ended up in Brooklyn was simply a look for a hope for more space. If you could afford to get out of the Lower East Side, you did. And the turnover within one or two generations was pretty remarkable. The tenant museum, according to the tenant museum, which I visited a few years ago, the big determining factor of whether or not a Jewish family uh, that was working in the garment trade or uh, or operating a push cart, selling eggs or whatnot, made it into the middle or lower middle class was whether or not dad survived. If dad died of tuberculosis or for an industrial accident, the family had a very horrible time of it. I know that on my uh, wife's uh, family, like her grandfather's father died and the poverty uh, scarred the family for generations. Um, another branch of my family, the same thing, no matter how well they did. But yes, I mean, this this uh, Lower East Side culture, this uh, imported Yiddish culture, uh, you know, we 
we you it's you commonly hear Gentiles say things like schlep or mm-hmm. or things like that Yiddish Yiddish words and the food we eat in New York is a amalgamation of Jewish food Italian food it was this big cultural melting pot and it, they on one hand tried to preserve what was the loved about the old world but I also think that a lot of these first generation immigrants they had a very hard time of it. Uh, trying to sacrifice for the next generation. But I do remember my grandmother saying that her parents refused to talk about the old world because I think it was just so traumatic that leaving everyone behind and the poverty and the persecution, it was sort of talked about in in whispers. And that's common. But it's hard to imagine an America uh, that didn't include the descendants of these immigrants Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Estee Lauder, George Gershwin, Fanny Bryce, Lauren Bacall, the Marx Brothers, David Sarnoff, Al Jolson, Sam Goldwyn, Ben Sean, Hank Greenberg, Moses Annenberg, many more. Um, they they cover the, the the breadth of American culture. Yeah, many ways they remade American culture or they gave us modern American popular culture. Think of George Gershwin, who grew up in grinding poverty on the Lower East Side, and he had to find work as basically a piano plugger, making piano rolls as a teenager. But he, by the time he died in, the, in his late 30s, you know, pathetically young age, he basically gave us the American mm-hmm. musical, the modern American musical. We would not be there without George Gershwin. The scope of his genius was incredible. But I think what you had with a lot of these Jewish uh, immigrants, especially the, the second generation, is that they wanted very much to be Americans and they translated America to Americans. And we would be a much culturally poorer country with, without them. And also comedy without humor. <laughs> Their Jewish humor, as I heard one very, one very Gentile friend of mine from Philadelphia say, Jewish humor has become America's humor. How is Albert Ballin remembered in Germany today, or is he even remembered? Well, he's remembered in Hamburg. Uh, there's been a big effort in the city to resurrect his legacy. Uh, but in America, he's not so well known. And part of the goal of my book, and actually the, what brought this book into being was, I thought about writing about Jacob Schiff, the investment banker, but then my agent said, this Albert Ballin guy sounds so fascinating. And... I think he was someone who deserves to be remembered. He was someone who was on one hand very successful and he wasn't perfect like most business people, but the result was he made this country a better place. So let's talk a bit about Jacob Schiff, who was the managing partner of the investment bank Kuhn, Lober and Company, um, and who used his wealth to help Jews to leave Europe. At the time, wasn't Kuhn, Loeb and Company which merged into Lehman Brothers in the 1970s, second only to J.P. Morgan in size? Yes, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, and Kuhn Loban Company had a very intense rivalry. And And they also played a major role. We'll get to that in a moment. Yes, uh, uh, Jacob Schiff, um, Leonard, are you still there? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, Jacob Schiff, he, yeah, he came over to America as an immigrant from Frankfurt in the early 1860s, and his father sent him over with $500 and 
a packet of kosher meat to eat on the crossing. <laughs> and Jacob Schiff was, uh, was uh, so he wouldn't eat, uh, wouldn't eat, have to eat the ship's food, which inclu- included pork. And Jacob Schiff was very industrialist and very industrious, very uh, shrewd and very smart. He took a job with this dry goods firm in Cincinnati called Kuhn Loeb and Company. And the managing partner at the time, Solomon Loeb, decided to go into investment banking to take this dry goods fortune and start investing. And they moved to New York. Jacob Schiff was very shrewd in that he decided to marry Solomon Loeb's daughter, Teresa. Very good dynastic move. And then Jacob Schiff said to his father-in-law, Solomon, in this post-Civil War environment, the biggest opportunity is railroads. Solomon Loeb was initially thought this was a stupid idea. But Jacob Schiff said, look, I'm going to make this place a powerhouse by serving as an investment banker to the best railroads in the country, the most promising railroads. And by the 1890s, Jacob Schiff, who had become managing partner at Kuhn Loeb & Company, was financial advisor to the Pennsylvania Railroad, to Edward Harriman at the Union Pacific, and to the Rockefellers. So an immigrant success story, he was at his death worth $50 million, but he would have been worth a lot more if he had not given away huge chunks of his fortune to Jewish, mostly Jewish philanthropic causes. His desire was that America should be the promised land for Russia's Jews. And he hoped that as many of them as possible could leave Russia. He called the czar the spawn of Satan for the Jewish people. So he used his financial muscle to punish czarist Russia for its pogroms? Very much so. He, in fact, financed the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War, which uh, ultimately Japan won. And he was hosted by the imperial family soon after the end of the war uh, as an honored guest. And he was... Uh, head of he was very involved with something called the Liberal Immigration League, which was the counterpart of the Immigration Restriction League, and uh, along with President Charles William Eliot of Harvard University, and he really felt it was his duty to protect the Jewish people and make this country as welcoming a place as possible for the Jews of the world. At the outbreak of World War One, didn't he refuse to back loans for al- for our allies, Britain and France, as for as long as they included Russia in their alliance? Yes, this ultimately got him into trouble because he said that why should America be on the side of an alliance that includes this horrible, dysfunctional, anti-Semitic dictatorship? And Jacob Schiff, like a lot of German Jews, a lot of wealthy German Jews, felt very culturally German. And they did not feel that the Kaiser was nearly as bad as Tsar Nicholas II. Now, Nicholas II, under his regime, we have this idea of him as his star-crossed romance was Tsarina Alexandra. And in reality, Nicholas II was a horrific anti-Semite. It was under his watch that the forgery, the protocols of the elders of Zion was published uh, and distributed throughout the empire, basically saying there's this conspiracy of Jews to, who are trying to control the financial world. And Jacob Schiff said, I, I cannot be part of an underwriting ep- enterprise that supports loans to this alliance. And that got him in trouble. J.P. Morgan and Company, which was his rival, they strongly backed the British cause. And it wasn't until 1915 when the 
Cunard liner Lusitania was torpedoed on a eastbound voyage to Liverpool, uh, 1,200 of the 2,000 people on board mm. perished in this disaster that Jacob Schiff was basically forced to make an apology uh, and said that Germany was in the wrong here. And he went over to J.P. Morgan Jr.'s office to apologize for what his homeland had done. And J.P. Morgan Jr. told him to get out of his office in a rage. Well, the German policy in those days was not anti-Semitic. That came later with Hitler. That that came later. I mean, there was anti-Semitism uh, in the foreign service and high government circles, uh, the military, especially the Prussian upper class that was very suspicious of banks and industry and shipping. The Prussian aristocracy, which had outsized influence in Imperial Germany, they derived much of their wealth from vast land holdings in what is today Poland. And they were very suspicious of of industry and of and of Jews. And Albert Ballin, whenever he felt he had to do business with these people when he showed up in Berlin, he said he always felt that they were he was surrounded by anti-Semites. He also said that the he was very unimpressed with the foreign office in Berlin. He said that the head of the foreign office wouldn't merit a job as an office boy in the Hamburg America line. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Stephen Ujifusa. His latest book, The Last Ship from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War One, is published by Harper. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. The third major figure in the story you tell is not Jewish, J.P. Morgan. In fact, did he have a slightly anti-Semitic side? Yeah, J.P. Morgan was very much an uber-Gentile. He was the son, the, the descendant of Puritans from Connecticut. And J.P. Morgan was quite anti-Semitic. He wasn't vocally so, but in private, he would say uh, pretty nasty things about Jews. He uh, never hired a Jew at J.P. Morgan and Company. And he saw Jacob Schiff as this... Uh, rival who was constantly getting in the way of his dominance of American finance. He fought a number of financial b- battles over railroads with Jacob Schiff. But did he JP see Ballin as also a, uh, a a major rival? Well, I th- the the way that the ba- the rivalry with Albert Ballin and J.P. Morgan came about was in 1901. Albert Ballin came up with sorry, J.P. Morgan came up with this idea along with a Philadelphia shipping magnate named Clement Griscom to basically buy up every single transatlantic shipping line he could and Mm. basically do what he did for railroads, what he did to the Atlantic shipping business, consolidate them into a monopoly. And he looked at the immigrant business, said, this is good money. Now, J.P. Morgan was no friend of the immigrants, but he said, look, I'm not going to turn away a good business opportunity when I see it. So he used his vast resources to try to buy up. He ended up buying most of the major British steamship lines, except for Cunard. He bought the Holland America line. He had control of the Red Star line, which had a major pipeline of immigrants from the city of Antwerp, Belgium. But he was stymied when he tried to buy the two major German shipping lines, the Hamburg America line run by Albert Ballin and the North German Lloyd line of Bremen. And basically the Kaiser's government blocked the sale and Albert Ballin worked very hard from behind the scenes to preserve Hamburg America Line's independence, which he did. He, Albert Ballin hosted J.P. Morgan 
1902, I believe, as a house guest of his at his villa outside of Hamburg, and basically came up with this idea of a profit sharing agreement, which preserved Hamburg America Line's independence as the world's largest shipping line and the biggest carrier of immigrants. J.P. Morgan wasn't satisfied with this, and he made a very unusual offer to Albert Ballin, offering him a salary of a million dollars a year to run the International Mercantile Marine, which was Ballin's, sorry, which was Morgan's shipping trust. And that was a vast amount of money. And Albert Ballin said, absolutely not. I am loyal to my company and I'm loyal to Germany. And Albert Ballin knew that J.P. Morgan's company could not work without the German shipping lines and the immigrant flow. And J.P. Morgan's biggest prize was the White Star Line, hmm. which was sold for $32 million the to the International Mercantile Marine. We are pretty much out of time, but I did want to get back to something you mentioned earlier. Uh, all of this uh, changed uh, when anti-immigrant sentiment led to Congress enacting the Immigration Quota Acts of 1921 and 1924 that... Uh, explicitly uh, were aimed at Eastern and Southern Europeans and and uh, the Japanese mostly, non-Aryans, and that lasted until the post-World War II period. Yes, these immigration restrictions were enacted in the early 20s that effectively barred Southern and Eastern Europeans from entering the country, and that was not revoked until 1965. Mm. And uh, uh, Jacob Schiff died in 1920. He didn't see this happen, but he saw what was happening uh, culturally. But these acts pretty much condemned hundreds of thousands of people, uh, Jews in Germany and elsewhere to Europe, to die in the Holocaust in the 1930s and 1940s because they couldn't get to America. This is a very sad story that you tell, and yet... Uh, it, it, much of it led to things that we're proud of in this country. We have a lot of other things right now that we might not want to be proud of. Uh, and and anti-immigrant immigrant sentiments are now not aimed at the, uh, the Russian Jews and, and the like or the Southern Italians. Uh, but um, we continued to fight these battles. Yes, there are a lot of uh, reflections on what we see today with this growing instability. And I think one of the great legacies of these men was when Jacob Schiff died in 1920. His funeral was held at Temple Emanuel, and he had given generously to Hyas and to Montefiore Hospital and research settlement. When he died, the funeral took place, and there were all these big shots in the in the synagogue. But outside were thousands of poor Jews who had trooped up from the Lower East Side and from Brooklyn in the rain to pay their respect to this man. Thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. Unfortunately, I, we've come to the end of today's show. I've been speaking with Stephen Ujifusa, U-J-I-F-U-S-A. His latest book, the Last Ships from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I is published by Harper. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leonard. It's been a pleasure. 
And if you're just discovering this program would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 1,000 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org, our podcast, which is now surpassed way over a million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station coming to you during these rough times, these rough economic times. Public radio in general is going through a rough time, but BAI, which doesn't take money from other sources other than its support of listeners, um, has been facing a particularly difficult time. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I by Stephen Ujifusa. So why not make that call right now? 212 212- 209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for five dollars, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars a month. Somebody's support us with a hundred dollars a month and even more. It allows us to plan for the future, and we will say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for ten dollars a month or more. But either way. What's really important is that you make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate uh, right now because we don't take money from other sources, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. Now, remember to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the station, thank you, and we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when we'll be opening the phones again to give our listeners an opportunity to discuss the things they consider most important. We'll see you then.